Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history group. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. This is the second of the uh, two episodes um, I've recorded to mark the 250th episode of the podcast. And in this episode, I talked to historian and author Professor Nick Lloyd. Nick is a professor of modern warfare at King's College London, and we talk about his recent book, The Western Front. This is published by Viking Penguin Books. Nick spoke to me from his home in Cheltenham. Nick, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, uh, well, I mean, how did I become interested in the Great War? Well, it's always been a sort of a family uh, memory, really. Uh, and the, the story of the Great War, my great uncle was killed in the war. And the sort of, I guess, a sort of folk family memory of the war. Uh, he was only, I think, 19 when he died in the last few weeks of the war. So the sort of tragedy of it was was always there with me. And I'd always find the First World War the most interesting part of modern history, really. Um, it just seemed a period of, of such enormous horror but also you know so many interesting aspects to the war that it sort of always held me in a way that sort of few other periods did it seemed to be that moment where the the sort of 20th century or the sort of modern history really turned on that that war everything that we became since uh, you know sort of hinged on that war I think so it seemed to be a period of history that I felt was still quite um still quite mysterious to me and and trying to find out what happened and why it happened has always struck me as being a great um a great thing to investigate and i've been fortunate i've been able to do it so you know predominantly on the western front but also increasingly elsewhere so the the war was i was always interested in military history and for me the first world war was where it was at really so why write a book on the subject obviously your book covers a considerable panorama on the conflict yeah well i've written um i've written a few previous books on the war um so i knew my way around the history of it and i think like a lot of historians, I think you, you start off in some ways in quite quite small niche subject areas that you, you become expert in. Um, and you do that and you're able to you know, craft your skill as a historian and, and become very confident and very knowledgeable about that specific uh, niche topic. And you, you get to a certain point in a historical career, I think, where you you begin to branch out, you feel the need to do something bigger on, on a bolder scale because you feel you have the command of the subject in the right way. And so I've written histories of, of battles in the war or brief events or relatively small periods of time. And, um, you know, I was, I'd finished uh, my book on Passchendaele, which came out in 2017 for the centenary. And I was casting around for various, I had various other ideas of, of books, but nothing really seemed to stick with the publisher. And then it was quite literally, um, I sort of woke up one morning, I thought I should do something bigger, something more, you know, expansive. I can't do another battle because I've essentially running out of battles that, that really I felt I could, I could, you know, I could really provide a, a new assessment of. And so I thought, well, I have to do something bigger. And then, you know, talk to my agent and the editor and they were, like, yep, fine, we'll do the Western Front. Um, it seemed a sort of logical progression for me from from doing individual battles then to doing the sort of the whole war on that front. So I think it's a sort of gradual logical progression that uh, that many historians make if they if they're able to to gain that expertise and then they they go wider 
um, because they feel they can sort of handle the wideness of the topic. Which brings me neatly to my next question is, what do you think other historians have missed in their sort of historiographies of the Western Front? And what makes you, what, what, what makes yours different? What? Well, I think a, a lot of the books aren't, certainly in the military history of the war, uh, they're mostly battle histories. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've done this, you know, you write histories of the Somme or histories of uh, RS or histories of Passchendaele or Luz or whatever it is. And, and that's absolutely fine. And, and of course, there's a, there's a really important role for that. Um, but I think putting it all together across the span of the, the conflict is, is quite challenging and different. So I think there's a number of things which I do, which is quite different. First of all, I, I, I try and include a kind of full perspective on that campaign. So as well as doing it from 1914 to 1918, I also provide an assessment of the uh, the German army and their development and, of course, the French army. So I think in certain British British history of the war has been quite um, narrow is probably too harsh a word, but it's been concentrated on the experience of the British army. And that's understandable because it's 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 so important in our history um, and, and understanding how that army functioned and why it fought the battles it did and how it did it was a series of really important questions. And I think now we've got to a point where we have a pretty good idea of that. And so you know, expanding that to include the, the role of the French army, I think is really important, which certainly most British people have only a very limited knowledge of. They might have heard of Verdun, uh, but that would be that would probably be about it. So I think it was really important to include all of those sides. And I think one of the benefits of doing that is as you see one side make some advance or do something good or try something new, the, then you get it, certainly in my books, you get a perspective on how the enemy is approaching it, how they respond how they try and counteract what's going on. And so you have this constant process going through the war of being able to see it from uh, the perspective uh, of the other side. Um, and I also think it's written in a sort of more narrative style that that allows people to, tr- well, hopefully it's designed to allow people just to, to sort of just get into it in a bit. And so they can just sort of sit alongside those generals and politicians and, and those people involved and just try and gives them a glimpse into how it felt at the time. And so you have the sort of narrative push as well. So I think there's a number of things that I think is different in my book, uh, which I hope people will enjoy. And what approach did you take to your book? Did you take a, a chronological or thematic approach? It's it's purely chronological in that sense. I mean, we have, there's, there's chapters, there's, some of the chapters are shorter in terms of, of, the, of the time period. Um, and and then they'll sort of expand in, in when the war regularizes and becomes trench. Uh, there's a lack of maneuver. It's sort of easier to write in that sense. So you'd usually get a chapter maybe uh, two months, three months. So you'll have a chapter that will just take it in that period of time, and then it will follow, and then it will just go through in that chronological narrative style. I think I think there are themes and ideas that run through the book: command and leadership, operations, tactics, technology. These things that you return to again and again. Um, and the characters of those individuals, how they change and are changed by the war. Uh, but it's it's a narrative history, so it's based on we will just go through that war month by month, week by week, and you'll see how how it changes and evolves and how the, each year is different to the preceding year. Um, and I guess the idea is to sort of keep you guessing until the final moment where you know, Germany loses and, and the Allies win. I was trying to think that you're seeing it from the perspective of the competence rather than the assumption that it's all going to end uh, for the goodies or in the baddies will lose. So on that theme, how do you account for the victory of the Allies and the defeat of the Central Powers? 
Well, I mean, that's a that's a very good question. I think if we're looking at the Western Front, which is the decisive theatre of war, I mean, essentially the central powers win in the East. Uh, they're able to not rush out of the war. They conquer the Balkans. Um, they pretty much uh, almost almost knock Italy out of the war at the end of 1917. So why did they fail in 1918? I think it's a combination of factors. It's a typical historian thing to say. Um, fundamentally, I think Germany over overestimates their strength um, and you have very sort of maximalist war aims that they're not able to calibrate to their strength effectively. Um, and so you have an idea that victory can only be won on the battlefield through a decisive military victory and therefore Germany has to attack in 1918. It must um, put throw all her strength into a decisive gamble on the West that will knock the Allies out and then they can then dictate terms. So that decision is a decision of enormous significance where Germany essentially wins in the East and then decides to go for broke in the West. And I think this is a disastrous decision for many reasons, but predominantly because it overestimates German strength and underestimates the resistance power of the Allies. And as long as the Allies can weather the storm uh, for a certain amount of time, the Americans can begin to build up their strength, which of course tips the balance. And then for the final period of war, you have a, a series of offensives, which ultimately the Germans can't, can't really do anything about. They can't counter them. The Allies are able to become increasingly effective on the battlefield. They're able to attack with more success. They're able to wield a weapon system of combined arms, artillery, air power, armor, infantry, much more successfully. And so ultimately the central powers, Germany just run out of steam at the end. They, there's really nothing left. Um, and they've got nowhere to go. And so ultimately they they decide that, you know, the gamble has failed. They have not been able to knock the Allies out. And with every passing month, it gets worse because then you have the American arrival. And yes, the, the Germans can still inflict pain on the Allies. They can still probably resist well into 1919 or at least into the spring if they can, they can get through the winter. But there's no real point because everyone knows that the Americans are going to be in such strength on the Western Front in 1919 that the game really is up. So that's the sort of decision that the, the German High Command ultimately are forced to make um, in 1918. So that's why I think 1918 is such an important year because it, everything comes full circle. So ultimately, the central powers are simply not able to calibrate uh, their sort of military strength with their political aims and objectives. And this is a basic failing in war. You overestimate what you're capable of achieving um, and you you want maximum gains and you're not able to recognize that your maximum gains are, are simply not going to be acceptable to the opponent. So therefore, any reasonable, logical assessment of Germany's situation in 1918, the beginning of 1918, would have been to essentially bank what you've got in the East and you know, get some kind of negotiation out, uh, give up Belgium or go back to 1914 borders in the West, which will allow Germany to preserve her strength in the east or at least her gains um but that was never politically acceptable or never acceptable at least to the, the people who ran the german empire and the german war efforts so ultimately it's a an overestimation of what they could achieve and what about the role of the learning process i mean this is a this is a perennial issue in for, for historians where do you stand on on the learning process i suppose in in mo most places it's been sort of looked at from the british and allied point of view did that have a significant impact and what was its nature because it's often very difficult to quantify we look at outcomes but 
it's very difficult to quantify the skills which you probably dominated uh, the, that that sort of process. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that the question is an important one, and, and I think it's necessary to look at how those armies, uh, if we look at the British and French, how they develop and how they're able to hone a weapon system that is more effective than, you know, than before, and to essentially stumble upon and work out how modern warfare is fought and the, the combination of all those arms, as I mentioned, tanks and air power. And this is something the Germans don't really do. They're able to innovate with infantry and artillery, but then they kind of run into sand because they don't have armor with it. So there's a real limit to the innovation of the technological process that Germany can go on. And that's why by 1919, 1918, the stormtroopers have been tried. They've, they've worked in places and, and they've really got nowhere else to go. They don't really know how to counter the Allies. Whereas the Allies have got lots of pieces of kit and they've got lots of ideas about how you can you could integrate all of these elements. And so I think the learning process that curve is a valid idea. And I think both sides go through it. Um, and I think you do see this very clearly on the Western front. It's like three elite athletes, four elite athletes, you know, working together. They drive each other on to greater feats that they individually could achieve. And because you have France, Britain and Germany, you know, they're going at it all the time. They produce far more innovation than in any other comparable period of, of modern warfare, I think. Um, so the learning process is an important idea. I think it's one element of the, why the war is one. We also must talk about strategy and operations and technology and you know policy. Um, but it, it means that by 1918, the Allies are in a position to be able to take that next step, whereas Germany just really can't. And do you think a reason Germany can't take that step is because of the blockade by the Allies and the internal problems this causes for Germany in the final year of the war? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the blockade is, is crippling in many ways and it, it, it forces German, Germany to innovate in certain ways that maybe they wouldn't have liked. But I think there's also a, a sense there isn't as much of a necessity for Germany to innovate offensively uh, during the war. Now, they, they, they are widely credited with the stormtroopers and with the sort of um, the hurricane bombardments and the poison gas that they use, which is which are very useful. But there, there really isn't the there isn't really the driver that the Allies face um, where they really have to, to work out how to do all of this in a very complex environment. In the East, it's always slightly different because there was always more space and you're dealing certainly by 1915 with, shall we say, second-class opponents, um, opponents that are not as ruthless, not as cohesive, not as strong as the Western powers. Um, and so there are different challenges there. So Germany doesn't need, it just needs to do the basic things very well which it does. Uh, you don't need to do truly extraordinary things like you would on the Western Front. So I think it's it's simply a, a, um, the blockade, of course, is a part of that process and a part of the reason why they lose. But it's also the sort of dynamics you get on the Western Front, I think. How do domestic political considerations focus uh, feed into the uh, front line? I'm sort of thinking around sort of the British appear to have a cohesion within society where maybe other countries lack that in the same depth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Britain is actually, you know, in some ways stands out really as, as being that cohesive, you know, and, it, and the British Army doesn't really undergo any morale crisis during the war. There are, there are periods of the war, it dips, period at Passchendaele, it's pretty low. There's a period in 1914, where there's worries, certainly the army, these occasional small scale mutiny here and there on any units, but the British Army does not undergo any large scale, uh, you know, disciplinary problems that you see, you see in the French Army. You see in the Italian army where, you know, you have huge numbers of surrenders in the Italian army in 1917. Obviously, Russia, uh, you know, collapses. 
Austria-Hungary has huge internal problems, uh, regiments simply walking over to the other side, entire regiments, 2,000, 3,000 men occasionally go over, and that worsens in 1918 when uh, the Hungarians say they're not going to fight anymore and things like that. So, uh, you know, Britain, you know, in some ways that's quite remarkable, really, that Britain's able to take on the horrors and the the challenges of the war and maintain a certain level of uh, cohesiveness, certainly within the army. And I think that says a lot about the army as an institution and what they're able to do to keep men fed, dressed, um, basic levels of care. They can keep a certain level of morale up. Um, And I think there's a certain... Certainly in Britain, there's just a sense of of Britain is going to win. Britain always wins. Britain is the greatest power in the world. So, you know, that's never really in doubt for a lot of British soldiers. Which segues neatly into my final question, which is about what was the impact of the USA and its obviously emergence as a political military power? What was their contribution to the defeat of the central powers? Or did they come? Was it too little, too late? I think this is a really important question. And I've always felt that the the role of the Americans has been somewhat underplayed in the literature. And I was very keen to, to, to incorporate them in. Um, and I'd very much make that point. I think the, without the American entry, I can't see the allies winning um, because, you know, they come in at a time in, you know, the spring of 1917 where the allied morale is, is pretty poor. And, you know, the French are in mutiny. The French have essentially culminated. They, they can't do that much after the spring of 1917. Um, they're not going to be able to lead the alliance in the way that they have done. Um, and you have sort of dysfunction between Haig and Petain. Where they sort of go their own ways, really. They don't see eye to eye on strategy. Um, and you have the impact of the, sh- the, the sinkings, the U-boat campaign. So the 1917 is a year of great, great stress within the alliance. And of course, Russia goes out of the war. So there is that moment of great peril that the Allies are able to ride out. And they ride out in part because they have now the promise of American support, financial power, uh, naval strength. And, you know, if they can just get the Americans to sort to buy into the Western Front and to make sure they build an army, then eventually they will win. They know that clearly. Um, and, you know, that decision to, to go for the U-boat campaign in, in 1917 is of enormous significance. And of course, completely disastrous because it gives the allies hope whereas without american entry there is no hope um and of course if we look at militarily the the americans you know are able by the summer they're in significant strength the divisions are big they can they can make sure french divisions can be removed from the line um and they're also you know they're attracting increasing numbers of um german divisions against them because they're so they're powerful now there's certain they're pretty green. They're not coordinating things as well as, say, the British or the French can do. But they, they, they're quick learners and they're willing to take the blood cost. And that's ultimately the question. Are the Americans willing to take the blood cost on the Western Front? And the Germans doubt that they will. The British and French may have some doubts. But by the summer, by the time you get Second Marne, when the Americans go into action, significantly land, there's no doubt that they are willing to to learn and to take losses and to do what is necessary. And so, you know, that once that is clear that the Americans will fight, even though the Germans aren't particularly impressed with them, they can't really argue with American manpower and commitment to the offensive. And they know they're only going to get better. So that once that decision is made and once that becomes very clear, it's game over and everyone knows that. I, I had a conversation with an American historian um, Jeff Warrow, who's who's very keen on the American involvement, he thinks it's been underplayed, and I tend to agree with him, uh, certainly to a certain extent. And he was saying, "Well, you you know, you've only got the Americans in a certain number of chapters in my book, 
I was saying, well, the problem is if you've got two or three month chapters, which I have, and some of the chapters get squeezed a little bit. The Americans only really formed their first army in late August 1918. And of course, they don't go into action in a major way until uh, Mers are gone in late September 1918. So there's only so many chapters I can include. So I think he accepted the point. But I'm certainly have agreed that I think the role of America is underplayed. And I don't think the Allies, for all the learning curve and for all the excellence of the British Army in 1918, I think the wider point is the alliance is sustained by American financial power, economic strength, industrial resources, but also that moral um, certainty that the Americans give when they, they make it clear that they will put an army into the field. And by 1919, it will be the strongest army in the field. And of course, then it's very clear that the, the Germans have lost. And my final question is, where can people learn more? Well, I mean, there's, there's you know, so many fantastic books on the Western Front and the First World War more generally. It's, it's a real sort of flowering of, of, um, of research and writing on it in, in the last 20, 30 years, I think. Um, and so there's, there's plenty of resources out there. There's actually, you know, so many resources online you can find now. You can find most of the official histories of pretty much all the nations online now. So there's huge numbers of resources and and documents that one might wish to consult um, and so there's there's a real there's a real amount you know there's so, so much more information than were available when I originally did my my original research where it was all sort of handheld and pencil and all this sort of stuff so I think there's also um, increasing number of archive documents available online as well as uh, of course in in the archives uh, around and about so there is no end of resources and I think uh, you know Dipping your toe into this is very can be somewhat scary, but it's very fascinating, very interesting once people start doing their own research on their little corner of the war and the war that maybe their uh, family sort of ancestors uh, were involved with. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely something I would encourage. Nick, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Great to chat. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>